WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. When people think about their meal, they're usually thinking about the ingredients that go into it and also how long it takes to cook that meal. For example, if I'm in a rush, I'm going to use a can of beans instead of dried beans. However, it's considered much healthier to use dried beans. To tell us more about beans, we're here talking to Hannah Jeffrey about her research. Hannah, may you please introduce yourself for us? My name is Hannah Jeffrey, as our wonderful announcer Chelsea just said, and I am a graduate research assistant in the Department of Plant Breeding, Genetics, and Biotechnology, or PBGB, at MSU, Michigan State University. What I study is dry beans in particular, which is why I got this interview in the first place. And I study them because I've always been interested in feeding people. I want people to be well-nourished. And there's multiple ways you can accomplish that. You can increase the amount of food that farms can yield, or you can increase the amount of nutrients in those crops. And my lab specializes in increasing the amount of nutrients in crops and also the quality of the product, which is dry beans. Thanks for joining us today, Hannah. When I think about canned versus dried beans, really the only difference I know between them is the form that they come in. Could you help our audience understand a little bit more what are some of the more important key differences between dried and canned beans? That's a very interesting question because there aren't that many differences However, the difference of sodium content does make an impact on some people's lives. People that are sensitive to salt, for example, cannot eat large amounts of canned dry beans. And yet, this option to prepare dry beans from scratch is not considered widely available by most people. I don't know many people that cook dry beans for themselves. It would be ideal for them to try it out. Also, canned beans can have high amounts of calcium chloride, and that's another chemical that helps to firm the beans up so that they don't explode while they're cooking in the retort, which is where you cook the beans. That might be considered okay by most people's standards, but it's actually not considered an organic molecule, and so you can't put that into organic food products. The, the solution here really for everybody is freshly prepared dry beans. There's also the question of the cooking time that these beans have. Beans, when they are fresh and dry, they take so long to cook. They can take between 90 and 120 minutes to boil to perfection. However, canned beans are ready to eat and convenient, and that's why most people prefer that. I didn't know that canned beans had calcium chloride for that reason. I just always thought that canned beans were just like beans that were cooked beforehand and then just preserved in a can. You had mentioned that your lab is focusing on increasing nutrients and the yield of the product. How do you increase nutrients in beans? We increase nutrients in beans by breeding the beans to have higher nutrient contents. We can take the beans and grind them up into flours perform some kind of nutrient content analyses on them that will tell us this bean has more iron or this one has more bioavailable iron that humans can digest and this one has more zinc 
then we can take the beans with the highest nutrient contents and breed them together in order to get beans with even higher nutrient contents than in the next generation. This reminds me a lot of classic Mendelian genetics here, where you're breeding and trying to get the most optimal nutrients coming out of these beans whenever they're grown for the next generation. Mendel worked with single copy genes usually that had a direct effect on one trait, but we're working now with traits that have many different genes involved, and those are called quantitative traits, and those are much, much harder to breed for. Quantitative trait loci and GWAS studies are two things that we can use in order to find these traits of interest. And you may remember me saying that these traits are difficult to work with because they have many, many genes that are all affecting this one trait. That is why we perform something called a QTL analysis or a quantitative trait loci study. Loci refers to a place in the genome where there might be a mutation something interesting that causes a genetic difference in between two different plants. In order to find those genetic differences that are associated with a particular trait, we can use a breeding technique called QTL analysis, and that will give us different mutations of interest that affect the trait. Then we can also do something called GWAS, which is a genome-wide association study wherein we take a lot of different plants that are all different from each other, but which all have the same trait, say all of them have high iron content, and we pull them together and we see what they have in common with each other on a genetic level. And that is what GWAS is. And we can use these techniques to find genes that we can then breed and select for. It sounds like a really complicated process, all just to increase the nutritional value of these beans. What is the overall motivation for changing the genetics of these beans, and why is your lab interested in this? Our lab is interested in changing the traits that these beans have, or rather changing or improving the genetics that they have because we want to increase the ability of humans to appreciate beans. Currently, there are a lot of problems that face beans, and we think that this is contributing to their unpopularity. We want people to eat more beans. How do we do that? Well, one thing we could change the flavor of the beans. We could make them more nutritious for people. We could take out things like anti-nutrients that make the beans less easy to digest, or we could make them prettier, or we could decrease their cooking time. And my project is decreasing their cooking time. It's cool that you can make the beans prettier. I never really thought that beans were ugly in the first place, though. Why would you want to decrease the cooking time of the beans, especially now that there are new kitchen appliances, such as an Instant Pot, that can cook dried beans in a much quicker time than a stovetop? The reason you probably haven't seen too many ugly beans is because of breeding. <laughs> but, you know, there's always room for improvement. The reason that we're interested in the ability to cook beans quickly is that not everybody has access to an Instant Pot. Sometimes these beans will go to people that are in a lower economic income bracket. 
or are perhaps from a different country who prefer to cook these beans in a traditional pot, or perhaps they are going to a different country where they don't rely upon electricity and instead rely upon things like firewood to cook the beans. Really, we just want to make these beans accessible to everybody in terms of cooking time. That makes a lot of sense when you put it into that context. It's understandable that not everybody around the world is going to have the same level of kitchen appliances at their disposal. For the experiments that you're working on, what does a typical experiment look like? Are you growing beans in the laboratory or are you studying the genetics on a computational level? I do both. Currently, I work with computation and I work with actual traits because I want to know if what I see on the computer actually translates into those traits. I don't know until I go in there and I get my hands dirty in the lab whether or not I've got something on my hands here that's actually worth reporting. What I do is I do something called RNA sequencing. And essentially, I just look at the precursors of genes and I try to make sense of all of that. And then I have to go and see whether or not those genes actually did their job. RNA sequencing is essentially a tool that can be used to figure out which genes are in a cell at any particular point in time. You use a computer to predict what kind of genes you want to analyze, and then you go to the lab to confirm your theories. How long does this process take? For example, how long does it take to even grow a bean? To grow a bean requires about a month. That is why we have to be quick. The way to make sure that we have enough time to do everything that we want to do is we can grow the beans in the greenhouse and then we can immediately take those beans into the lab and then do things with them while we're waiting for even more beans to grow. The computational stuff is actually the most time intensive in my opinion because it requires you to do a lot of searching. If you don't know what you're doing, like I didn't know what I was doing at the beginning of this process, it takes even longer. I think that it's taken me about three to six months to perform the analyses that I need to do. I could imagine that there would be a lot of research that is necessary in order to really understand the genetic information associated with the beans that you're working on. I know, as I'm sure the rest of our audience knows, that beans can come in different varieties, shapes, and sizes. In your laboratory, what types of beans are you working with, and do you see any dramatic differences in the genetics across these different bean variants? I work with brown beans, and I work with yellow beans. Those varieties actually are not commonly seen in the United States, and so it's been thrilling to learn more about them. We think that the yellow beans are going to be the next big thing on the U.S. market because they are fast cooking. We find that they have a higher iron and zinc content compared to other varieties, and they also tend to cook faster than most other bean varieties. We are interested in the differences that exist between different kinds of beans differences between, for example, a brown bean and a yellow bean. But we are also interested in the ways that they're similar in terms of cooking time, for example. Yeah, I don't really come across many yellow and brown beans. I hope it makes it over here because I love trying new food. Since they're not very common over here, do you know if there are any differences in them, for example, genetically? We know that there are some differences. 
because interestingly enough, these beans take different amounts of times to cook, even though they look very similar to each other. We want to know why is it that some beans take longer to cook than other beans, no matter where in the world you plant them. That is why I'm performing these experiments. I want to know on a genetic level and a trait level or an expression level, one could say, why are they different? How are they different? And can we change or decrease their cooking times by breeding for specific traits? I'm sure the rest of the audience is thinking about this, but I have to ask, in your laboratory, are you physically cooking the beans to actually show that the cooking time has decreased? And for those that aren't as familiar with cooking beans, what are some signs that beans have finished cooking? We absolutely have to cook the beans. We have a device called a Matson cooker, and this device is really, really automated and interesting. Essentially, we put a pin on top of 25 beans and we boil the beans on a slow rolling boil until the bean becomes soft enough that the pin can dive through the beans. And when it does, it closes a circuit and it tells a computer, hey, this bean is done cooking. And we can predict with very high accuracy what the actual cooking times of that particular variety of bean it is ideal to soak the beans for 12 hours in order to make them ready to cook because that increases that decreases their cooking time and we also know that if you pre-boil the beans that can reduce the amount of anti-nutrients in them and it will make you less likely to develop intestinal problems we know that the beans are done when you can press them between your fingers and they become super mushy, or you bite them between your teeth and they don't taste undercooked. Having to pre-soak those beans for 12 hours beforehand, I'm sure just adds another level of inaccessibility for people that live in these more rural areas due to the fact that they may need to use the water for other purposes. Beans, though, will take less time to cook if they're soaked in water for 12 hours, and that can decrease the amount of fuel that's required to cook them. And so overall, it probably is a more sustainable idea to soak them first. Typically, you do have to throw out the soaked water from the beans because it contains all sorts of anti-nutrients. That's a really good point. If they're in an area that has a lot more water but not as much firewood, they would prefer to soak the beans beforehand to then be able to cook them much quicker. In regards to your project, how far along are you till your completion? We're about, I would say, halfway through because we're also starting up a new project related to the cooking times of aged beans. In terms of cooking time, in fresh beans, we've come a long way in that we've found genes that are probably different, that are probably expressed in fast cooking or slow cooking beans that control how fast it takes to cook the beans. And in particular, there's been, there's been indication that it has something to do with the cell walls of the beans. And in particular, the modification of specific oligosaccharides or the chains inside of the cell walls that makes the true difference. Well, that's great that you're going to be nearly complete with this project. 
you mentioned a little bit earlier how you're motivated to work on this kind of project due to the food insecurities that exist throughout the world. Do you volunteer outside the lab with any external organizations to maybe help with the food insecurities here in the state of Michigan? At the moment, it's really hard to do that because we're in the middle of this huge pandemic. My colleagues are amazing in that they have managed to deliver some of our dry beans to food insecure people in our local area. And for that, I am truly humbled by the example that they set. I recently have developed a sticker that you can put on dry bean packages that will teach people more about how to cook and prepare beans. But that's a bare minimum that I want to do. I really hope that I can do way more in the future to improve people's ability to eat. It's great that you're donating the extra beans to people who need it. And I really love that sticker idea. That's great science communication. I was wondering, Hannah, what would you like to do when you've completed your degree and this project? I like to think that I could be a good teacher. I want to be somebody that inspires the next generation to feel like they belong in science. And so, if possible, I would like to be a mentor in academia or in industry, and I would love to work on improving crops for the benefit of other people. Well, we definitely need people like you in the world to help make sure that these food insecurities don't continue on into our future. Thank you, Hannah, for joining us again to talk to us about your very impactful research on the bean genetics and improving the cooking time associated with these beans that people use all over the world. Yeah, thank you. It's been a serious problem, I think, food insecurity, even here in the United States during the COVID pandemic. I remember people parked for miles and miles in food bank lines. Maybe if we make this food a little more accessible to them, it would go a long way. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. To hear more about us and learn more about our episodes, check out scifiles.org. If you're a current MSU student that would like to be interviewed, please reach out to us at scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll catch you next week on the Sci Files, and remember, the truth is in the science.